Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. We're recording this in late January, and on January 13th, the Supreme Court issued decisions in two closely watched cases involving the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. Uh, in one case, NFIB versus uh, Department of Labor, the Supreme Court held that the agency had overstepped its bounds in issuing a vaccine mandate or a testing requirement for private employers. In a concurring opinion in that case, Justice Gorsuch said that the court had applied the major questions doctrine. He said the court rightly applies the major questions doctrine. And he went on to say, why does the major questions doctrine matter? It ensures that the national government's power to make the laws that govern us remain where Article I of the Constitution says it belongs, with the people's elected representatives. Well, some people would agree with him and and others would disagree. And so to discuss that issue, the major questions doctrine and the future of Supreme Court jurisprudence and administrative law, I'm joined by two experts and friends, uh, Jillian Metzger, the Harlan Fisk Stone Professor of Constitutional Law at Columbia Law School, and Kristen Hickman, the McKnight Presidential Professor in Law at the University of Minnesota. Jillian, Kristen, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Happy to be here. Why don't we start with Kristen? Kristen, can you just describe, I'm, I'm sure the listeners, most of them know, but, but how would you describe the, the major questions doctrine, what it is and, and what purpose it serves? Sure. Um, now, I have to preface uh, this explanation of the major questions doctrine by observing that even though the major questions doctrine has been around for a while, uh, the opinions in NFIB versus Department of Labor reflect some disagreement among the justices, I think, over how to think about it going forward. Um, I assume we're going to talk about that disagreement in the course of this podcast. So I will simply describe the major questions doctrine as I think it has been historically understood. And as I think the court's per curiam opinion in NFIB applies it. The major questions doctrine emerged some decades ago as a strand of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on judicial deference to agency interpretations of statutes. In 1986, uh, then-Judge Breyer published a law review article in which he reflected upon the circumstances in which courts are inclined to and should defer to agency statutory interpretations. And one of his observations was that courts are more likely to defer to agency interpretations addressing what he labeled interstitial matters, because those are the sorts of questions, he said, that Congress is likely to leave to agencies, whereas Congress itself is more likely to have focused upon and answered major questions. In other words, I think we can construe statutory silence or ambiguity as a delegation of policymaking discretion to an agency when the interpretive questions are small ones or interstitial ones, but perhaps not so much when the silence or ambiguity implicates a major question. Now, since Justice Breyer wrote that article, the court has invoked this idea of judicial deference being inappropriate for major questions in a small handful of cases, some of which the agency won and some of which the agency lost. So, for example, People often point to the Supreme Court's decision in MCI Telecommunications versus AT&T in 1994, where Justice Scalia rejected a Federal Communications Commission order making tariff filing optional for all non-dominant long-distance telephone carriers as exceeding the agency's statutory authority. And he did that at Chevron Step 1 saying that the statute was clear, but also he said that the sheer scope of the order's change to the very heart of the regulatory regime in question made it unlikely that Congress intended the agency to make, to be able to make that regulatory choice. Um, Later in 2000, in FDA versus Brown and Williamson Tobacco, Justice O'Connor rejected the FDA's efforts to regulate tobacco advertising at Chevron Step 1 as clearly inconsistent with the statute's text and the legislative history of congressional efforts to regulate tobacco. But citing the MCI case, she also suggested that Chevron deference was inappropriate in certain what she labeled extraordinary cases, 
where the legal question is of such economic and political significance that Congress could not have intended to delegate it to the agency to resolve in what she said would be so cryptic a fashion as might have been such in that case. Um, Echoing his own 1986 Law Review article, Justice Breyer alluded to the major questions doctrine in Barnhart versus Walton in 2002 when he said that Chevron deference was appropriate for a Social Security Administration regulation in part because of the interstitial nature of the legal question. Um, and then in King versus Burwell in 2015, Chief Justice Roberts for the court said that an Internal Revenue Service regulation interpreting the Affordable Care Act was ineligible for Chevron deference because, uh, number one, the tax credits at stake were central to the statutory scheme. Number two, the tax credits were also economically and politically significant. And number three, the IRS lacked expertise with respect to health insurance policy, which was the subject matter driving the tax credits. He said it just wasn't plausible under those conditions that Congress intended the IRS to be the one to resolve the statutory interpretation question at stake. And so then the court went on to decide that the best interpretation of the statute was that advanced by the IRS and its regulation. So upheld the IRS's regulation anyway. Finally, in Alabama Association of Realtors versus the Department of Health and Human Services last summer, the Supreme Court rejected the CDC's claim of authority under the Public Health Service Act to impose an eviction moratorium on landlords, again by saying that the CDC's actions were contrary to the text of the statute, but also saying that even if the text were ambiguous, the sheer scope of the CDC's claimed authority meant that the court expected Congress to speak clearly if it intended to authorize the CDC to exercise powers of such vast economic and political significance. So to a great extent, then, the major questions doctrine has been employed much like a substantive canon of construction, sort of akin to the elephants and mouse holes canon, refusing to interpret mere statutory silence or ambiguity as giving agencies the policy-making discretion to resolve questions of great economic or political significance. In other words, the court has applied the major questions doctrine as a clear statement rule. Our interpretation of the non-delegation doctrine has allowed Congress to give agencies really broad policymaking discretion. But for the big questions, the court wants Congress to be more explicit. And if Congress isn't so explicit, then the court will read the statute at issue as not giving the agency the authority that it is asserting. Um, that's the approach to the major questions doctrine that I think the procurium opinion in NFIB versus Department of Labor was following. Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion was a little bit different, and I'm happy to talk about that, but I don't want to monopolize the microphone, so maybe I ought to give Jillian an opportunity to weigh in with her own thoughts about the major questions doctrine. Thanks for all that, Kristen, and turn over to Jillian in just a second. But Kristen, can I just ask you one quick follow-up question? That's You just mapped out sort of doctrinally, case-by-case, case where this comes from, but just in the big scheme of things, what exactly is the court doing when it implies the major questions doctrine? Is it trying to understand what the what the author of the law, the statute in question, intended? Or are they construing the statute for other reasons? Um, is, this, is this an act of, of interpretation or is this something other than that? Well, and that's the trick with substantive canons in general, right? Um, substantive canons themselves are typically predicated um, on some other sort of either, you know, quasi-constitutional value or some sort of judicial policy, um, sometimes reflecting um, assumptions that the court makes with respect to congressional intent. Um, but not always necessarily. I mean, sometimes, you know, oftentimes substantive canons operate as clear statement rules, uh, just like I think the court has applied uh, major questions as a substantive canon as a clear statement rule. Um, but sometimes substantive canons act as ambiguity tiebreakers, at which point they are more a matter of statutory interpretation, you know, 
given statutory ambiguity, we're going to put a thumb on the scale in favor of some sort of value that may be communicated by the content of the statute itself. So some substantive canons say we'll decide the case in favor of particular parties because those are the parties the statute itself is designed to benefit. But other times the substantive values that are driving the canon as ambiguity tiebreaker um, reflect instead quasi-constitutional values in favor of um, federalism or in favor of, um, you know, not uh, throwing people in jail without clear evidence of congressional intent or, um, you know, ideas of liberty along those lines, um, you know, or, or what, you know, um, as uh, alluded to, to some extent in NFIB versus Department of Labor, you know, maybe concerns about uh, democratic legitimacy and accountability. Thanks for that, Kristen. Jillian, let's give you a chance to jump in. I mean, we can tackle maybe some of the more specific aspects of, of, of the OSHA cases and the HHS case, if we want to get into that. But but just focusing on what, what's happened up to this point with the development of this doctrine. Um, I mean, feel free to agree with everything Kristen said. It'll be a short podcast and, and, and our listeners can go listen to Sports Talk Radio or something. But Or if, if you have any sort of other, other opinions on the subject, please jump in. What's your take so far on the development of the major questions doctrine? So, uh, I mean, as far as, as Christian went, I, I, I actually have um, uh, some similarities, um, but I think both of you kind of hit on what I would say are the two key questions right now. One is what is happening with this doctrine and the way it is being evolved and the way it's being applied. And the other one related to that is, is it really a doctrine of interpretation at all um, at the moment or is it something else? Um, I mean, I have real concerns about how the court is invoking and applying and using this doctrine right now. And I don't think that the Supreme Court is being open about what it's doing. Um, and I actually think the way that it's applying it is, is unjustified. So I do think that, as, uh, as Kristen said, it, you know, it began, um, we're familiar with it as this, I, the, this idea you don't defer to certain kinds of interpretations, right? Um, so if you've got an, an ambiguous statutory provision and um, you know, the agency is using it to assert authority in an unusual and unexpected way, we're not going to defer to that. And that kind of makes sense. Chevron is a doctrine about implied delegation. And so maybe it does make sense to imply that Congress intended to delegate that authority to the agency in that in that context, right? Um, but the way it's being used increasingly is to um, deny the agency authority to act at all as a claim that the that Congress has to specifically authorize certain kinds of agency regulatory actions. Um, and there, I think it's even more unjustifiable. I mean, so if you, if you focus on the initial one, the idea of deference, as I said, I think that kind of makes sense. You can think of it in terms of implied delegation, but you have to look at it in context, right? There are going to be some provisions where actually the fact that you're talking about a matter that's of great significance and importance is one clue about whether or not Congress intended the authority. But there are other clues that may very well suggest that Congress meant to delegate, um, and that, in fact, it is the right meeting. You have to look at the text of the provision, and you have to look at the history, and you have to look at what came before, and, and a whole bunch of things. And a lot of those clues may actually say, in fact, the agency should have this authority here, right? Um, so I think it works as a doctrine, provided it's just one one clue about whether or not you should defer among others, right? It's, it shouldn't be the all-encompassing um, basis. When you, when you turn then to how it's being used as a requirement of specific authorization, that has even weaker foundations, right? I mean, to begin with, it is often being asserted in the face of, of statutory text to the contrary. You've got very broad statutory provisions, and the court is saying, you know, it doesn't really matter if that's broad um, because Congress didn't clearly authorize um, this action, right? Um, and that's a, just a different move, right? Um, uh, and it's not a move, I think, intended to try and understand what that statutory provision means. I think it's being animated by different kinds of concerns, the kind of substantive concerns that Kristen alluded to. Um, and one thing to do here is, you know, we, we have the famous elephants and mouse holes canon, right? Um, I think you could contrast the current uses of major question with that canon. That canon basically says, right, if you've got a narrow or unusual statutory hook, we're not going to think that Congress meant it to be a font of great authority, 
right? Makes sense. But a lot of the statutory provisions that we have right now, these are elephant holes. They're not, they're not mouse holes. <laughs> and, and guess what? The agencies are finding elephants in elephants holes. And you may think that their interpretations don't work, but do it on the basis of the full provision. Um, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss whether or not non-delegation provides enough basis. I, I just don't think it's an adequate basis for what the court has been doing. But more importantly, I don't think the court's acknowledging what it's doing, right? I don't think it's really coming up front and justifying why non-delegation allows it to make these moves to strike down very broad um, agency actions that are based on very broad statutory provisions. And until it starts doing that, then I have real concerns that this is just, you know, a sort of unjustified um, invalidation of agency action um, without really telling us where the action is and what's going on. Jillian, if this is just a doctrine of constitutional avoidance in, in the same, in the way that Kristen suggested earlier, maybe phrase it a different way. Do you, th- do you think of it as a doctrine of constitutional avoidance? And, and if so, how does it fit alongside other sort of avoidance doctrines, whether it's construing statutes to avoid conflicts with, with free speech or other constitutional mm-hmm. rights? I mean, do you, keeping it in its right place as you see it as one tool among many, do you think it's at least similar to other avoidance canons or is there, should we still think of it as something fundamentally different from that? So I think, first of all, I don't think it's being kept on this. I mean, I think it's becoming, you know, all encompassing. That's and if and part of this is how these cases are coming to the court and how they're deciding them, right? But you know, at least grapple with the fuller text. At least grapple with what the agency did, right? Um, uh, and instead, all we're getting is this very uh, kind of flip and often inconsistent reasoning from from the court. So so hopefully that doesn't fit with the way the court approaches most questions to begin with. Um, uh, you know, one of the issues when you're dealing with constitutional avoidance is key question: How strong is the underlying constitutional claim, right? Um, now, with federalism clear statement um, canons, which are often critiqued, to, to be clear, but a good deal of how we enforce federalism today, and the court has openly, I think, justified this, is that it's often in the form of a kind of process federalism. It's through the idea that, that Congress, the processes of Congress are going to be how we take state interests into account, and therefore clear statement is part of that uh, intentional, you know, putting traction and making it hard. Um, to infer. you can you can agree or disagree with it, but it's an, an understanding of substantive federalism that is, I think, there. When it comes to non-delegation, the court recently had a non-delegation case in which it rejected a majority of the court did not. I mean, granted, it was a, a plurality and, and you had a little and then it may be that there is now a majority of the court for revitalizing non-delegation. Um, but at the time, it, the, the, the long-standing approach to non-delegation, which is that we only need an intelligible principle, was what the court affirmed. And instead of coming out and saying, we are changing our tune, which would mean that they would have to justify changing their tune. And there are a whole bunch of reasons to think that the claims about non-delegation that Justice Gorsuch in particular has been advancing cannot be supported as interpretations of the Constitution as an original matter. Don't his version of non-delegation doesn't fit with the structure of the text of the Constitution today, but but at least have at it, engage the merits of that rather than pretending that you're actually interpreting statutes when you're really just enforcing these statutes. So that's what I find troubling. It's a frequent critique, to be sure, of constitutional avoidance, that you, you're avoiding actually engaging with the constitutional question, but it's particularly acute when you're talking about non-delegation, which is a doctrine that has really not been in, enforced in any robust way. And that would mean such radical changes to the shape our, our government takes that it really would have to be engaged with directly before we would go there. A couple points, uh, Kristen, that maybe I'll bring over to you from what Jillian just said, and maybe we'll pick up with the one she just left off with. We often hear about the major questions doctrine as being downstream of the non-delegation concerns of number of the justice on the court, or it's an application of the non-delegation principle, but Jillian makes a good point here. Before they can start avoiding a non-delegation problem, there has to be established that there's a non-delegation problem. Can they really use major questions to, to enforce non-delegation principles without first actually just announcing what non-delegation standard they're, they're dealing with here? What, what question they, problem they are trying to avoid with this doctrine? Sure. And that's, I think, one of the interesting aspects of the per curiam opinion versus Justice Gorsuch's opinion in NFIB versus Department of Labor. 
So, you know, in the Gundy case, when Justice Gorsuch, in his dissenting opinion in that case, you know, was advocating for replacing the intelligible principle standard as the way we interpret the the non-delegation doctrine and uh, the vesting clause of Article One, um, you know, he talked about, you know, his ideas about, you know, policy making versus filling in details. And he set up the major questions doctrine as something different, as a subconstitutional way of avoiding non-delegation doctrine issues, um, like I've been describing as a substantive canon. Um, and after Gundy, um, in, you know, later that year, in a statement regarding the denial of certiorari in a case named Paul versus United States, Justice Kavanaugh spoke, who did not participate in Gundy, spoke approvingly of Justice Gorsuch's Gundy dissent. But then he went on briefly to talk about major questions doctrine and to suggest that Justice Gorsuch would not allow congressional delegations of authority to decide major policy questions, even if Congress expressly and specifically delegates that authority. And the way I read Kavanaugh's um, statement in Paul, I read it as doing something a little bit different than what Gorsuch was attempting in Gundy, you know, with a slightly different vision of how to approach non-delegation, you know, what the alternative might be instead of intelligible principles. And that Kavanaugh's reliance on major questions in that sense is just a little different than Justice Gorsuch's approach. What I see happening in NFIB versus Department of Labor, you have the per curiam opinion. Um, and I think Jillian's right with her criticism of the per curiam opinion in that it really doesn't engage very thoroughly in a traditional tools of statutory interpretation sort of a sense before turning to major questions as substantive canon. But nevertheless, I see the majority's opinion as relying on major questions as substantive canon. Justice Gorsuch's opinion, his concurring opinion in NFIB is different um, in that I think he is continuing to advance his pursuit of replacing the intelligible principle standard except now he's at least implicitly picking up on Justice Kavanaugh's statement in the Paul case um, and effectively, although not quite so explicitly, turning to that as the replacement standard, turning to major questions as the replacement standard for the intelligible principle standard, rather than treating major questions as simply a canon of statutory construction. Um, and that's interesting because of, you know, where it might lead us down the road in another case. But you do, he did only get two other justices to sign on to his concurring opinion. So it does make one, So and then you have three justices in dissent in NFIB. So it does make one wonder whether three justices want to keep major questions as a canon of construction or whether, and only three justices really want to replace the intelligible principle standard ultimately with something like major questions or whether this just isn't the case where you're going to drag everyone along. You know, it's, it's, it's very up in the air. And I, with the consequence that I don't know entirely how to think about major questions doctrine now, are we in the process of turning it into a constitutional standard as opposed to a canon of construction? Or do we really not have five justices on board to do that, such that the better way of thinking about it continues to be thinking of major questions just as a subconstitutional, substantive canon of construction which is a lot weaker potentially in terms of what it would accomplish. Can I just add one, one, one thing to that, that um, I think that's, that, that's right. And I do, you do see the move um, major questions doctrine and then Kavanaugh when he was on the DC circuit advanced this major rules version, which he then references in his Paul opinion. And that is a distinct 
form that is more what we're seeing now, but it's never been justified, right? So, and, and what I find particularly troubling is it, the, the idea that Congress has to clearly and specifically authorize a particular agency action needs justification. It's fine to say you need clear authority for major actions. That's fine. But sometimes Congress writes broad provisions precisely because it is anticipating new problems and it wants the government to be able to respond to them. And what the court seems surreptitiously, if we go with this line that, that is particularly articulated by Gorsuch, um, if that is the line, to be saying is Congress can't do that without ever justifying why Congress can't do that. Now, if Congress can't do that because it's something about delegation of authority, then we have to understand why Congress could do it if it's specifically often. There's just a whole lot there that has not been justified or unpacked. And in the meantime, you know, broad provisions of granting authority, uh, you know, get, get curtailed in how they, and how they could be used. And you don't get the kind of deep engagement with what Congress might actually have been doing. Um, I have more complaints, honestly, about the, the re, the non-major questions aspects of the majority in the OSHA case um, uh, because I think actually what they did is it wasn't it wasn't just that that you know they were concerned about the delegation I, I think they just misread the text they put in the text basically says OSHA can you know issue occupational safety and health standards right um, and they put in sort of a OSHA can only issue exclusively occupational health and safety standards, as opposed to standards that might actually echo with public health in the world at large. Um, you can maybe try and get there through non-delegation, but as a, as a matter of statutory interpretation, it's a particularly implausible one and one that for me sort of, you know, particularly with the court relying on its intuition about what is public health and what is occupational safety and questions in which, um, they really do not appear to be the expert decision makers, in my view, is, is troubling. But again, that that at least is a statutory interpretation question as opposed to the major questions doctrine. Well, and I will say, though, that, you know, and, and this is something that I've been struggling myself to know what to think about over the last couple of days as I've been thinking about this opinion and mulling it over. Um, one of the disadvantages, it seems to me, of treating major questions as a canon of construction is that in all the cases previously where you saw major questions being applied, you know, the Supreme Court took upon itself to interpret the statute using text, history, purpose, you know, whatever canons, etc. And so it set up the court as the alternative decision maker as opposed to the agency regarding what the statute meant. Um, And while I understand the reservations about reinvigorating the non-delegation doctrine, you know, there is this question that Justice Gorsuch poses in NFIB where he says the question is who decides And he sets it up instead as a question of whether Congress or the agency decides, effectively in some sense, trying to take the court out of the major decision-making role. You know, one of the things you saw in King versus Burwell that I think some people found a little bit dissatisfying is the court said, we're going to decide what this statute means. And we're going to, ultimately, that means the court deciding the policy question. I mean, admittedly, they they sided with the agency. So as a consequence, um, you know, they've, you know, you've got two branches then deciding the question. But in some of these other um, major questions cases, you know, you could ask how aggressively is the court employing other tools of statutory interpretation to reach a conclusion regarding statutory clarity, where perhaps statutory clarity really doesn't exist. You know, so if you look at FDA versus Brown and Williamson Tobacco, for example, um, you know, the statutory analysis that the majority opinion went through to conclude that the meaning of the statute was clear was extensive. It wasn't just looking at text. It wasn't just looking at the history. 
of the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act, it was, you know, looking at sort of a hundred years of history of the of Congress trying and failing to regulate tobacco. Um, and it was it was really sort of attenuated and aggressive in employing what otherwise might be thought of as traditional tools of interpretation in order to find the meaning of the statute clear. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about, about, you know, the court using major questions as a substantive canon is that it does seem to prod the court to be very aggressive itself in interpreting statutes rather than Hunting questions, I, you know, and I guess that does still punt questions back to Congress after Brown and Williamson, uh, to, after Brown and Williamson tobacco, Congress did step up and enact legislation to regulate tobacco advertising, um, you know, but nevertheless, um, you know, it, it does seem to sort of obfuscate a little bit what the court is doing, whereas at least when they, when Justice Gorsuch says, in his concurring opinion in NFIB, this is a question for Congress to decide. It clearly and unequivocally tells Congress, hey, you've got to decide this, you know, rather than either the agency or the court deciding it. Right, although it does also assume Congress didn't decide by giving the agency broad authority. Sure, sure. I'm just not sure, you know, it, 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 one of the, I don't remember who said it, but one piece of commentary I read about NFIB versus versus uh, Department of Labor here was that um, the justices seem to some extent to be talking past each other with respect to this who decides question mm-hmm. with some justices thinking that it's a debate between whether the agency or the court will decide, whereas other justices see it as a debate between whether Congress or an agency will decide. And unless and until they stop talking past one another and really engage with one another on that question, that the the major questions doctrine is going to continue to be a bit of a muddle. There seems to be a, in that dynamic of the justices maybe talking past one another. It also seems to be a difference in who's looking at what's already happened and who's sort of looking at what might happen next, right? Justice Scalia famously in his, his own personal defense of Chevron in the, his, his 1989 Duke Law Journal article, he really framed his approach to Chevron as trying to frame up a set of incentives and doctrines that would make Congress a better version of itself going forward. And frankly, the procurium reads a little bit like that. It begins in the, it's opening, I think even on the first page saying Congress has passed laws during COVID, just not on this. And and one reading of the procurium opinion might be that what the court's trying to do here is to put Congress on notice in this pandemic and in future emergencies that it ought to get out ahead of things and legislate in real time and not just wait for the agency to act. Now, maybe that's not what the court's doing. Maybe the court, if that is what it's trying to do, is not realistic about the Congress we have. I would like to be an optimist on these things. But but what do you think about that? Is is, is that an aspect of these issues? And, and if so, is it is it hopeless? Uh, Jillian? Well, so I would say on that, I mean, it's in, one thing that connects to that is this very interesting language in the opinion uh, of both the um, procurum and the Gorsuch concurrence, emphasizing that the OSH Act is 50 years old. Um, and, um, you know, un- unclear really fully what they what, what that means. Obviously, statutes don't, there's, there's no time limit on our statutes, right? Still, still perfectly valid statute on the books. Um, one thing that they do is they emphasize that during that period, Congress didn't, uh, sorry, the agency didn't take measures like this, right? So that's, a, that's one valid way. You're sort of looking at historical practice in that period. That's one way how it could be. But it could connect to what you're suggesting, which is a sense that Congress needs to act more close in time to an emergency. Um, the, the problem I have with that is, and, and certainly, you know, we have seen congressional action um, in, the sh- in the face of this emergency. Um, so I do think it's wrong to say Congress can't act. Congress can. Um, but one of the ways that Congress acted in this particular area with the OSH Act is precisely to say, 
we know there are going to be new hazards in, in workplaces. That's one of the things we know. That's what we've seen over time. The Industrial Revolution, things are changing in workplaces, new, new um, dangers, toxins. And so what are we going to do? We're going to give an expert agency broader sort precisely so it anticipates. We don't want the workers to have to suffer the injuries before protection can come in. We have an agency. We're giving it broad authority. And we're giving this emergency um, temporary standards, which is what was really at issue in the OSHA Act, right? And we're, how are we going to cabin the agency's authority? By saying it can only last for six months, right? By other kinds of procedural and um, uh, other kinds of limits on agency authority that serve as other checks against untrammeled agency. By the way, none of that is mentioned in the opinions, right? The, the, the kind of traditional ad law idea of, well, procedure and time limits and you know, knowing you're going to have to judicial review, all of that, of the record of supporting it. That's how we think of constraining agents gone from these opinions altogether, which is another thing that, that I find troubling. But, you know, so you, my concern with, with the per curiam suggesting that Congress needs to step up and act is that then we need to have a, an account and justify why it is that what Congress did anticipating there would be new dangers in workplaces isn't enough. And that leads us a little bit into this question of, you know, this move that the, that the per curiam makes of it's what, what Congress didn't do is give authority to regulate on public health risks. It only gave authority to, to regulate on occupational you know, I, I've already expressed a great deal of skepticism about that. It really echoes to me in Lochner. But more importantly, think about what it would mean. I mean, the dissent talks about fire hazards. The thing that came to my mind was tornadoes, right? There is nothing specific about workplaces where tornadoes are a threat. They are a threat, period, right? So OSHA can't require certain kinds of tornado proofing in workplaces because it's a broader. I mean, there's a kind of lack of logic to it. It it seems to me to have this kind of, for this case only, we need to get out of this box of this case. We think this went too far. Um, uh, And so I I just find that particularly, uh, particularly troubling. And, and, And then when you look at the other case that they decided that day, where they recognized that a health and safety standard is actually a health and safety standard, miraculous, here we go. So um, I, the other thing, what I'm voicing is just frustrating. I find that the, these decisions by the court, not only are they not justifying what they're doing, they are unprincipled, they're inconsistent. And part of this is they're coming on a very fast basis. Part of it is they seem ideologically driven and forced on the court in some ways by ideological lower courts. So I, I find that to be actually quite troubling as a, as a way of setting this out. Maybe there's justification to the major questions doctrine. But the way these cases are getting teed up with all of this going on and implicit and not justified, I find particularly troubling. Just, you know, one thing to point out, by the way, the majority opinion in describing what it's doing, it doesn't actually use the unless I missed it. I don't think it uses the term major questions doctrine. I think no. it's Justice Gorsuch in his concurrence when he, he writes uh, the court rightly applies the major questions doctrine. See pages five to six. He's sort of the one saying, hey, this is the major questions doctrine. Um, but Kristen, let me take Jillian's last point and bring it back to you and maybe put this a fine point on it. Uh, just as we've already mentioned, Justice Kavanaugh has expressed a lot of sympathy for the major questions doctrine in the D.C. Circuit case. Uh, we mentioned earlier, he called it the major rules doctrine. He's been sympathetic for non-delegation, both in the Paul opinion and a, a speech he actually gave a couple of years ago at my other institutional home, the American Enterprise Institute. Um, but when I listen to him talking about the major rules doctrine, I think about the article he wrote for the Harvard Law Review a few years ago. He did a review of the late Judge Katzman's book on statutory interpretation. And um, I think it was, yeah, the first page of his of his article, he says, you know, he, one of the downsides of Chevron, he, what does he say? I have it here. The primary problem of Chevron is that uh, it depends on initial determination of whether a text is clear or ambiguous but judges often cannot make that initial clarity versus ambiguity decision in a settled, principled, or even handed way. Now, I mean, let me just put my cards on the table. I'm pretty sympathetic to the major questions doctrine, and I've written legal briefs in my, my past life as a lawyer on the major questions doctrine. I'm pretty sympathetic to it, to say the least. Um, but I have to say, you know, when Kavanaugh makes that point about the, the difficulty of making a principled decision between clarity and ambiguity, 
it sounds a lot like the same question he's teeing up with the major rules doctrine between what's a major rule and what's a non-major rule. So maybe just then to back into Jillian's broader point, I mean, how do you apply this doctrine in a, in a principled way that, that won't seem politicized or, or arbitrary? Yeah, and I don't know that I totally have an answer to that question. I mean, you know, at least after King versus Burwell, you know, you you sort of looked at the way that Chief Justice Roberts wrote about, um, you know, the major question in that case. And he talked about the centrality to the regulatory scheme in question, um, the political and economic significance of the interpretive question, and then the relative expertise of the agency. Um, and what wasn't clear from that, you know, you could at least in theory fashion that into sort of a three-part test, right, for when a particular question is a major one. You know, he didn't pull those out of thin air entirely. If you look at the earlier jurisprudence on major questions, you sort of see those themes emerging, um, you know, but what if only one of them is present or what if two of them are present? It's it's what if a question is economically significant, but not politically all that significant? You know, it's not entirely clear um, which factors are especially relevant in defining exactly what is or is not a major question. Um, you know, then again, we've been wrestling for for you know, 35 years with what does it mean for a statute to be ambiguous such that you have a delegation and we haven't managed to answer that question either. Sometimes standards are just mushy and we just have to work with them. One thing I do want to say with respect, you know, circling back though to the Chevron jurisprudence that I think is really a backdrop for this case. Um, And I'm going to be at least a little bit sympathetic to the justices in that I think that they are grappling with a suite of questions that they're not sure, some of them are not sure about how to deal with. And so they are repeatedly kicking the can down the road a little bit and grappling with them. And that really sort of is what do you do with, in in, in our current politically charged moment. Um, Although it's not unique to this moment, this has been going on, I think, for a while. When you have political um, pressure on the government to act in a certain area, to solve a particular problem, and Congress either doesn't act or isn't able to act or, you know, doesn't step in for one reason or another, then because we do have such broad delegations to the executive branch, there is now this pressure. And not even just from, you know, the public, but often from members of Congress themselves for the executive branch to step up and push the interpretive envelope, or at least arguably push the interpretive envelope to act itself through regulation. And one of the things that that has done that we have seen in the last few presidential administrations, I think, then, is as the presidency swings back and forth from one party to another, then there is this equal pressure to undo what the last administration did in certain areas. And this pendulum effect with respect to statutory interpretation has real implications for rule of law values, um, you know, for consistency in the law. And I think that um, part of what's been animating some of the justices' concerns about Chevron has been this pendulum back and forth with respect to interpretation and pushing the envelope as as at the executive branch for problems that maybe Congress really should be the one to step in and say something about. Um, and so, you know, at the same time that you have the push on the non-delegation doctrine among some justices to try to reinvigorate that doctrine to reanimate Congress to deal with some concerns. You simultaneously have concerns about agencies pushing the interpretive envelope and claiming Chevron deference and 
than that pendulum destabilizing the law. Um, and I think the justices genuinely, I think many of the justices are concerned about it, but I think there's disagreement among the justices about how to handle it. And do you handle it at a constitutional level? Do you handle it at a subconstitutional one? Do you think of it as a statutory problem? Or do you think of it as a problem of judicial policy? You know, what box do we put some of these questions into? And they can't even get past that stage, let alone how then to shape the doctrines. Um, and I think that's a little bit of what's going on here in the background as well. Yeah, you know, in the that aforementioned Scalia article about Chevron back in 89, I think my favorite part in the article he says, you know, it's good that the agencies can change their minds over time. That's a feature, not a bug. But then he kind of says almost in passing, of course, if the agency flip flop too much, you might have a due process issue, but we'll kick that can down the road. I mean, talk about kicking the can down the road. That does seem to be, you know, part of this. I wouldn't be doing my job as the Gray Center's co-director if I didn't point out that just last year we hosted a, a virtual roundtable on this issue of polarized administration. And we had papers from Kevin Stack and, and John McGinnis, Michael Rappaport and others thinking about this issue of the polarization of administrations and the uncertainty going back one way from one administration to the next. I, I would just add, and Jillian, I'd love to hear your reactions to what Kristen said, but let me just add you know, in recent years, last decade or so, every once in a while, the court in administrative law cases talks about reliance interests, right? We saw this in the Fox case about agency flip-flops, and the court just made passing reference to sometimes reliance interests would put a, a little thumb on the scale. Um, the recent case, the Board of Regents case involving the rollback, the attempted rollback of the DACA case, that there was a lot of a sort of a mood of reliance interest there. In reading the this, this OSHA case, I don't know, it feels a little bit like reliance in a way, right? If the agency hasn't asserted this, this power in 50 years preceding it, we should all be able to rely on the agency not having that power and turning to Congress to give it that power. I, I don't know. Does any of that sound plausible or, or what do you think? Well, I do think I do think that there are um, some of these are the concerns of background. I have, a, I have a slightly different take on some of the concerns of background. You do you do see this concern about about sort of policy flip-flops that is manifesting um, in, in, as you point out, reliance decisions in administrative law. I think we're seeing it in explanation requirements. You have to really explain changes. And, and those strike me as, you know, the ways to deal with that concern. I, I, there, there are a few other things that I would say, though. One is, as Scalia would be the first, I think, to acknowledge when he says changing position is good, on the one hand, that's also a sign of political accountability, um, right? Administrations are being elected because of their policy views on issues of regulation in, in good part, right? And so, yes, you're going to have change. Um, and, you know, the oddity of, on the one hand, emphasizing the need for political accountability, um, and on the other hand, critiquing agencies for responding to political accountability seems to me um, hard to square. The, the other thing I would one other point I, I would make is I, I just think we have to acknowledge that there are members of the court who are much more libertarian in their outlook. This is not a simply we don't like flip flops. This is a we don't like regulation. The major question doctrine is being used um, in a very asymmetrical way. It is being used other than King, where, as Kristen, as you pointed out, it, it had a different valence. It is often being used, particularly in the recent cases, to undermine regulation. That is an important distinction between the per curiam and Gorsuch in the recent case. The per curiam makes it clear that it's not saying that OSHA couldn't regulate COVID in workplaces. It has to do so in more particular workplaces. It's not, and that, and that is an important difference, right? Um, in terms of this, the fact that the agency still has authority, I think under the per curiam, there's much more doubtful that, that under the Gorsuch con concurrence um, uh, at all. Um, and then, Adam, the only thing I would say is that, you know, yes, one could say in 50 years they didn't do this. We didn't have a pandemic. I mean, this is what this is then gets into the contrast between the um, the, you know, NFIB decision and then the HHS decision the same day. Right. Um, where the court acknowledges. Yeah, it's unprecedented. Guess what? It's a pandemic. We haven't had one of those. So you haven't seen this action before. You, you also haven't had a political climate in which. 
you know, there might be health institutions that wouldn't mandate vaccination because it wasn't so politicized. I mean, these are unprecedented challenges and you have agencies responding to them. And I don't think that I would say that we should say there's reliance, um, you know, that you're not going to have an agency use its authority to address the problems of the day. So I, I might push back a little bit on that. But I do think that it is important to realize that there are other hooks within administrative law to get at some of these concerns, um, other than at the outset trying to cut back on the authority to regulate and act at all. And that's why I think this has a real libertarian valence. If you go for it there, you're trying to cut it off at the knees as opposed to um, you know, uh, requiring an agency to justify more or reconsider or take reliance interests as it should seriously. Now, we, we don't have nearly enough time to, to explore all the issues. One thing I wanted to get into, we just don't have time to, is we talked about major questions doctrine in uh, the MCI case and, and, and maybe also in Brown and Williamson. And that, to the extent that was it was there, it seemed to be Chevron step one. We saw it in Chevron step two with Scalia's opinion for the court in Utility Air Regulatory Group. We saw it in Chevron step zero, as we mentioned, in King v. Burwell. And if we'd have more time, um, I, I would have asked, does it fit equally well or, or equally poorly at each of those three stages of Chevron? But we'll save that for the next episode. Um, one other thought I'd throw in before we close is maybe this isn't just putting Congress on notice. Maybe it's putting agencies on notice. Maybe agencies like OSHA and others will take a step back now and think, well, should we start pre-announcing the view of our sort of our expansive powers just for a rainy day in the future. Maybe, you know, ironically, this will create an incentive for agencies to actually proactively formulate broad interpretations because they're worried about being hemmed in in the future by not having alluded to it earlier. But those are just my last reflections. Uh, Kristen, uh, any any further thoughts of, of your own in closing? Oh, I mean, I think just very quickly in response to your last point, I think far more likely is that agencies will um, instead, rather than trying to preemptively speak broadly, I think agencies will turn their focus to more interstitial questions, to use Breyer's terminology, um, you know, in order to avoid these kinds of fights. Um, Now, you can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um, as a normative matter, but that would be, I think, more likely than agencies preemptively trying to claim authority on the offhand chance that someday that they might want it, because how are they going to know exactly how to frame it? Well, Kristen, thanks again for joining us. Jillian, you get the last word. Any any closing thoughts? Um, it's been a great conversation, and I have a feeling we're going to only have more, because it seems like administrative law major questions are, you know, the topic du jour these days. Well, thank goodness. Otherwise, what will we have podcasts about? Jillian, thanks for joining us. And and thanks to our listeners, as always, for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters.